Well, good evening. Welcome to another Wednesday night Bible study. If you would, please turn in your Bibles to Psalm 40. Psalm 40. Hopefully it's a familiar psalm to you. It's uh, one that I've enjoyed studying, reading over the years. And I think we'll find the blessing as we're going to take a brief look at it tonight. Nothing super thorough, but enough that I think we'll be making encouragement to you. I hope to continue to use some of the Psalms for these Bible studies, but we'll get into other portions of Scripture too. But this is just something that's been a blessing to me to go through the Psalms on a steady basis and find things that will bless us. I titled the lesson tonight, The Fragrance of Christ. The Fragrance of Christ, using Psalm 40 as our basis. As I mentioned last week, I love the Psalms, not only for their poetry, but how they cover a wide panoply of life experiences, both in David's and in others' lives, and obviously they reflect in our lives. They're doctrinal psalms, they're historical psalms, there's prophetic psalms, psalms of judgment, of thanksgiving, there's penitential psalms, and as we noted last week, there's hallelujah psalms. The last five or six psalms of of the Bible are called hallelujah psalms because they begin and end with praise the Lord, which in Hebrew is hallelujah. So there's all a wide variety of them. They have a great... uh, I guess you might say, opportunity for us to learn some life lessons as we read them and study them and uh, are hopefully spoken to them by the Spirit of God who inspired them. Best of all, though, are those psalms which give us a fragrance or a glimpse of Christ. We should be alert to those psalms or portions of psalms that are particularly prophecies of our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who think Jesus is found only in the New Testament are wrong. We see him in types and shadows in the Old Testament, and his glorious fragrance permeates the text of the Psalms in particular. And that's what I want us to look for. I want us to enjoy. I want us to get a kind of a, a pleasure, just as you would be if you're you know, going to your favorite uh, coffee shop and you walk in and you smell that, that coffee or your favorite bakery and you step in there and you smell that fragrance of the, of the baked goods or even in your own home when you're, you're cooking something and it just kind of hits you, boy, that's really good. I'd like to have more of that. The idea of finding Christ in the Psalms should say to you, to your, to your sensitivities, to your intellect, I want more of that. I want more of him. I want to see him more. And, of course, it would lead you to a, a thorough study of the, of the New Testament. But in the Old Testament, there's kind of that little glimpse, that little fragrance that gives you a flavor that makes you want to know more. Interestingly, <clears throat> uh, Paul refers to the Psalms as the word of Christ, quote-unquote, in Colossians 3.16. And in Luke... Chapter 24, and 40, verse 44, when Christ appeared to his disciples there in the upper room after he was on the road to Emmaus, remember, and uh, he suddenly disappeared there. It was after his resurrection. When he got back to the upper room there and they, they witnessed him, he reminded them of all the things written in the law of Moses, in the prophets, and in the Psalms concerning him. They must be fulfilled. That's sometimes we have to stop and, and think, you know, all that Jesus and his disciples talked about all that they referred to from the scriptures was the Old Testament. They're pointing back to Christ in the Old Testament. So he's saying, you know, if you were reading the prophets, you're reading Moses, you're reading the Psalms, they speak of him. So we can find Christ in the scriptures of the Old Testament. He himself is telling us that. Someone, in fact, pointed out that out of the seven words or phrases uttered by Christ on the cross, four of them either quote or fulfill verses in the Psalms. I'll give those to you. You can look them up later. Psalm 22, verse 1, Psalm 22, verse 15, Psalm 31, verse 5, and Psalm 69, verse 21. 
out of those sayings on the cross that Jesus said before he uh, passed or, or died and then was, was buried, those are four of the things that he said were taken from the Psalms, either a direct quote or they fulfill a passage in the Psalms. So let's read Psalm 40. And as we do so, I want you to look for glimpses or the fragrance of Christ in the text. But not only that, I want you to look for a picture of salvation and its impact on a repentant sinner's life. You'll see that kind of played out here. Remember, this is a psalm written by David. He was a prophet. He was a king who was not only in the line of Christ, but was a type of Christ, as we know. Therefore, we should not be surprised to see Christ in his psalms. Now, as you look back over the psalm, though, uh, let me, I'll read a quote to you. But let's look at it. Let's read it first, then we'll look back over it while I'm going to give you a quote from Matthew Henry regarding this particular psalm. Psalm 40, beginning at verse 1. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined unto me, and he heard my cry. He also brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He hath put a new song in my mouth, a praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. Blessed is that man who makes the Lord his trust and does not respect the proud, nor such as turn aside to lies. Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works which you have done and your thoughts towards us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak them, speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you did not require. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, and your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips. O Lord, you, know your, you yourself know I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord. Let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me. For innumerable evils have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to look up. They are more than the hairs of my head. Therefore, my heart fails me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Let them be ashamed and brought to mutual confusion who seek to destroy my life. Let them be driven backward and brought to dishonor who wish me evil. Let them be confounded because of their shame who say to me, Aha, aha. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. But I am poor and needy. Yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. <clears throat> Now, as I mentioned, kind of look back over the psalm here. Let me read you this quote by Matthew Henry as he kind of gives a little summary here of this. And as you're looking back through there, again, look for glimpses of Christ and also for a picture of salvation itself. Henry says this, It seems David penned this psalm upon occasion of his deliverance by the power and goodness of God from some great and pressing trouble by which he was in danger of being overwhelmed. Probably it was some trouble of mind arising from a sense of sin and of God's displeasure against him for it. Whatever it was, the same spirit that indicted his praises for that deliverance was in him, at the same time a spirit of prophecy, testifying of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. <clears throat> so Matthew Henry sees in here not only a picture of David pleading with God for deliverance and for blessings and for help uh, through a trial, 
but he also sees that spirit of prophecy, prophecy testifying of the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. So let's look real quickly at, at two things. First of all, the fragrance of Christ and then the picture of salvation. Verses 1 through 3, notice our Lord Jesus Christ was in the garden and on the cross, both in the garden and on the cross, he was troubled in his soul and cried out to the Father and said, he, and it says in Hebrews 5, 7, he was heard and that he feared. And we see here in verses 1 uh, and 2 in particular, I waited for the Lord, he inclined unto me and heard my cry. Uh, that waited patiently, actually in the Hebrews, is I waited, uh, I waited upon waiting. And the picture there is that he's, first of all, he's heard his cry. God's heard his cry and he has been waiting for God to give that answer because he knew God would answer. He had a sense of, of trust that he would. And Christ indeed was brought out of the miry clay, in other words, the grave at his resurrection, was raised up in the glory at his ascension, and no doubt with songs of praise both to God by him and the angel choruses. So there's a picture there of Christ crying out to the Father. God heard him, as it says in Hebrews 5, 7, in that he feared, and he was delivered from death and raised up into eternity. Secondly, in verses 6 through 8, more likely you saw that as you read it, it's here that the fragrance of our Lord is very strong. The sacrifices of the Old Testament law were but a faint picture of the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. And here, his obedience to the Father in becoming the once-for-all sacrifice is profoundly set forth. He came in accordance with the divine decree to, in fulfillment of the covenant of redemption. He delighted to do the Father's will. The author of Hebrews quotes this passage. In fact, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll see that uh, Paul, who we believe wrote Hebrews, we're not 100% sure, but Paul interestingly quotes this psalm in Hebrews chapter 10 of the words speaking and applying this to Christ. We'll look at uh, Hebrews 10 beginning at verse 5. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire. You can see that's right out of the Psalm 40. But a body you have prepared for me in burnt offering and sacrifices for sin you had no desire. And then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book, it is written of me to do your will, O God. Verse 8, previously saying, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. <clears throat> we are justified by Christ's work not by the works of the law. He not only delighted in doing the Father's will, but he did it for us that his righteousness, his life of obedience might be imputed to us. He also proclaimed the message of salvation, the good news of righteousness to all who came to him while he walked on earth. That's seen there in verses um, 9 and 10. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness. He went about doing that. His whole life here, his ministry on earth, was proclaiming the message of God's righteousness as compared to the unrighteousness of the people and that he was the answer to their needs of salvation as far as giving them a righteousness that they could not uh, accommodate themselves in. That's the picture of Christ there. And you can look a little further. In fact, it's interesting, as I was reading this psalm, if you were to look over real quick at Psalm 41, you'll see another kind of brief message that this is uh, messianic in its nature. Uh, let's see, where is it? It's in um, oh, verse 9. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. You see these little vignettes, these little pictures that speak, of course, that speaks of Judas and betraying Christ. 
So as you go through the Psalms, I encourage you to look for Christ. Don't just read the Psalm and say, that was nice, that was pleasant, move on to the next one. Read it with a, an intensity of looking for Jesus, not making up something that isn't there, of course, but looking for those passages which, of course, often are quoted in the New Testament, which Christ reviewed there in the upper room with his disciples, which he reviewed with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus. If you read that passage in Luke 24, you'll see that he, he kind of rebuked them for not heeding what Moses and the prophets and the Psalms said about him. So we need to look for Christ in the Psalms, look for him and find joy in studying him. Next, let's look at a picture of salvation. Let's look back now briefly at the second picture here in the Psalms. And let's read verses 1 through 3 again and look how it portrays us in this situation. Put yourself in this picture as a sinner in need of salvation. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my steps. He has put a new song in my mouth, praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. <clears throat> we were mired in the pit of sin the dirt of Adam's fall. And when we cried out to God in repentance, he heard our cry, he lifted us up and placed us upon a rock. And that rock is Christ Jesus. Matthew Henry put it this way, Christ is the rock on which a poor soul may stand fast and on whose meditation alone, mediation alone between us and God, we can build any solid hope of satisfaction. Not only that, but he raised us up and he has given us cause to rejoice, as it says there in that verse 3, in our salvation. He's given us songs to sing of our Redeemer, which we will be doing, of course, as we go through this hymnal and sing on a regular basis, as we do. We sing songs of our Redeemer. God has given us a song. He lifted us up out of the miry clay, put us on Christ, our rock of our salvation, and he's given us a song. A song that we sing and a life that we live that tells the people around us, that we are his. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord there in verse 3. That should be our goal, that our life, our testimony, reflects to the world our love of Christ and our trust in him. Our joy and openness in praising God for our salvation will be a witness to others and cause them to fear and repent and note the important part there, the latter part, will trust in the Lord, the latter part of verse 3. Look now at verse 5 with me. Verse 5 says, Many, O Lord my God, are your wonderful works which you have done, and your thoughts toward us cannot be recounted to you in order. If I would declare and speak of them, they are more than can be numbered. Once we come to know Christ, once we are brought into that state of rejoicing in him, what else do we do? We begin to notice more of God's creation. As the creation to us beforehand was just a place we lived in. You know, we, we observed it, maybe we appreciated beauty to a certain extent. But once you become a believer in Christ, once you're a child of God, you begin to see his handiwork begin to see that this is his creation. You begin to notice the beauty of it, the intricacy of it, the details of it, uh, how things grow and can be grown properly, his, his initial design in things. I'm sure Doug has seen that with the crops he grows. We've seen it with the animals we raise. You get the picture of God's creation in a greater way once you come to know Christ, once you're in him. It's like God opens your eyes to all the wonders of his creation, be it the universe itself, the stars, the animals, the plants, the beauty that he has designed, the intricate balance of this world, how the world rotates around uh, the sun 
and how the other planets rotate. Everything's going to balance. Everything's in a, a beautiful symphony of movement that God designed. Those are the kind of things that, as a Christian, we begin to notice, whereas before we maybe took them for granted or looked at them from an intellectual you know, point of view. But not, now we look at them from a, a belief, a spiritual point of view, that this is designed by God. So in addition to our awakened consciences, we'll become more aware of the wonderful works of God, as Spurgeon says, in creation, in providence, and in redemption, our special attention is called by this passage to the marvels which cluster around the cross and flash from it. As believers, and he goes on to say here, as we look at verses 9 and 10, as believers, amongst friends and relatives, we have the responsibility to declare God's righteousness and his faithfulness and salvation. But I think, as I mentioned to Brandon the other day, these two verses, 9 and 10, let's read them. I have proclaimed the good news of righteousness in the great assembly. Indeed, I do not restrain my lips, O Lord, you yourself know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have declared your faithfulness and your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great assembly. That speaks to us as individuals as we go out into the world, as we interact with family, friends, coworkers, people on the street. We have the responsibility, we have the joy of declaring the righteousness, the plan of salvation of God, his work. Uh, we have a, a dis, an opportunity to speak out and proclaim that truth. But I think it even speaks, this passage speaks directly to elders. That's our responsibility, isn't it? To teach in the great assembly, to teach righteousness, to proclaim the message of God's salvation, to proclaim his, his truth. And I think that's a challenge that we have, which we would appreciate not only for ourselves, but for all ministers of the word, that we would be faithful in that task of proclaiming the word of God, proclaiming and not hiding his righteousness, but declaring his faithfulness and his salvation, as it speaks there in verse 10. <clears throat> Verses 11 and 12, let's look at those. Do not withhold your tender mercies from me, O Lord, but let your loving kindness and your truth continually preserve me, for innumerable evils have surrounded me, my iniquities have overtaken me, so I am not able to look up, they are more than the hairs of my head, therefore my heart fails me. In these verses, we see the continual need of God's protection and mercies as we find our sins at times overtaking us. Yes, we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Yes, if we, yes we have acceptance with God because of the work of Christ. But we know that we're still in the flesh. We still are fighting a sinful nature. And so we do have times in which if we're not careful, we can give in to sin. We can let sin overwhelm us. So this two verses here, these two verses speak to that of our need to cry out to God on a continual basis, uh, to be willing to repent and, and trust God to deliver us. John, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. We need to keep that in mind and we need to battle against sin. We need to realize that Satan's not going to take a break. He's going to continually try to drag us down, trip us up, make us do something stupid or sinful, selfish. We need to be on guard and we need to pray that God would deliver us out of, out of their hands, as he speaks there in verses, uh, I think, 14 and 15. And 16, 14 and 15, he speaks of delivering us from evil, from those who would seek to trip us up, who would delight to see us fall and bring a reproach upon God. He's faithful. He will protect us. We need to distrust in him. If we cry out to him in faith, he will deliver us. That's what it speaks of there in verses 13 through 15. Lastly, verses 16 and 17, let me read those last two. Let all those who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let such as love your salvation say continually, The Lord be magnified. But I am poor and needy, yet the Lord thinks upon me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. 
Lastly, we as God's people can together rejoice in his marvelous salvation and together we can magnify his name. That's what we do when we come together to sing, uh, to pray, to hear the word. We come together to magnify his name, to glorify him, to thank him for his mercies and to learn more of him that we might uh, trust in him to help us and deliver us from evil and that he would not delay to come upon us and meet with us, uh, that he is our help and our deliverer and we can, we can cry out to him and know that he will answer. So this is a beautiful psalm. I hope it'll be an encouragement to you when you read it in the future. And as I said, as you go through the psalms, look for those fragrances, those little vignettes that speak of Christ, and let them encourage you to go even further into the Word, to find in Him uh, those, that beautiful picture that is spread throughout the Word, particularly, of course, in the New Testament, but even here in the psalms, because it's, it's a great encouragement to your soul when you're faced with those kind of challenges. Okay? Thank you. May the Lord bless you. Let's finish up with a word of prayer. 